The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing and turn in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read just verses 33 to 37. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. You'll find that on page 810 in your pew Bible. Well, this is God's holy word. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we plead with you now that your word, which is truth, which sets us at liberty from the attacks of Satan and the attacks of our own flesh, might now be imprinted upon our hearts, that your spirit would work richly in each one of us, speaking the truth to us, that we may know the truth and we may speak the truth, that we might be children of our Father in heaven who is a God of truth. Have mercy on us then, we pray, according to our need, and uh, grant us your presence, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I think probably most of us would agree that we live in an age of profound falsehood. Uh, Whether it's our political system, the media, or just society at large, uh, we have seen truth now eroded beyond recognition. We now have versions of the truth, your truth, my truth, somebody else's truth. At least that's what we are told. And that worldly spirit has undoubtedly also infected the church In the last 150 years or so, we've seen a gradual erosion of the core truths, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. In the church at large, battles, for example, for biblical inerrancy have been lost. And they've lost, been lost at the hands of those who swore oaths to uphold those very doctrines. This passage speaks to us principally of the truth, speaking the truth. The presenting matter is oaths and similarly vows. But the heart of the matter here is truth and honesty. The Christian is to let their yes be yes and their no be no. And so the passage, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, calls us to great self-examination, 
but also to great Christ examination, as we see in him the one who embodies truth-telling, taking oaths even to his own hurt, why, even to his own death. Are we living like our Lord? Are we living like the king of this kingdom? Is truth as precious to us as it was to him? The passage is laid out for us, uh, much like the rest of the sections in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Our Lord deals with the law misinterpreted. Then he explains the law as it was intended, and then he applies the law. Uh, So verse 33, we have, if you will, the truth according to the Jews. Then in verses 34 to 36, we have the truth according to the king. And then in verse 37, we have the truth applied. So we're thinking about the truth, truth truth-telling, and the ways and means in which we are to do that. Uh, As we've said, the truth according to the Jews, verse 33, was indeed no truth. That's not to say the law that is quoted in verse 33 is not the law. Uh, We'll see that in a moment. It clearly is the law. But as we've seen elsewhere, the Jews misinterpreted the law. Verse 33 reads thus, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's the language of vow. The language of vow, to swear to the Lord that you will do something. And the law of Moses is filled with laws concerning vows and oaths. Leviticus 19 verse 12 is very similar to our passage here. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Or we could turn to Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Vows and oaths. Vows saying we will do something where we promise an action, voluntary action to the Lord. We take upon ourselves that action. It's not required by the law. I vow, for example, I will not uh, let wine touch my lips for one year would be a vow to the Lord. We're obligating ourselves to an action and frequently see those actions paid unto the Lord in worship. An oath, on the other hand, is swearing to the truth of something. I swear by Almighty God to tell the truth. We're invoking the name of God to show our sincerity and certainty that we're telling the truth. Our Lord appears to set aside the practice of taking oaths in verse 34, but that's not what he's setting aside. Uh, We see himself being placed under oath in Matthew 26, and he fulfills that oath. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 22, has a whole chapter on lawful oaths and vows. And let us never forget, and we'll return to this at the end, that God himself took an oath. He swore by himself that he would bring salvation to his people. So when we get to verse 34, our Lord is not setting aside the practice of vow-making or oaths, but rather he's setting aside the practice of insincere vow-making 
and taking of oaths. He's setting aside the Jewish malpractice of this law. He says there in verse 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. That's where he seems to set it aside. But what he's saying is this, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or by your head. As we've said, an oath was designed to add solemnity to a promise or a testimony being made. That something being said is true, inviolably true, by the presence of an oath. And the oath would often take the name of God, and in doing so, the oath taker is invoking God to bring judgment upon them if they break their oath. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if I break this oath. May he repay curses upon me if what I say proves to be false. And taking oaths for the Jews was very serious, at least it was initially, and it was designed to show the truthfulness of what was being said. And so they would swear by something holy to ensure that they and those to whom they were swearing or taking an oath understood this will come to pass. This is absolutely the truth. And yet our Lord, already in Leviticus 19, back then, said this, you shall not swear by my name falsely. He did not say you shall not swear by my name, but he says you shall not swear by my name falsely. Why? Because that is to dishonor the name of God. It is to blaspheme the name and character of God Almighty. And yet, you know, probably the Jews had a problem with the name of God, didn't they? The name Yahweh, they would never say it. It was deemed too holy to be said And so gradually over a course of time, uh, they removed the name Yahweh from their scriptures, replaced it with another name, and they would not swear by the name of Yahweh because they thought the name was too holy to be uttered. So they began to swear by other holy things. Yes, holy things, but less holy uh, by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even by the hairs on their own heads. Head. Now, those of you who were here in the last few weeks, you've seen already how the Jews played fast and loose with the law of God. You don't need to be a genius to work out what they're going to do with this law, how they viewed laws on vows and oaths. They stopped swearing by the name of God, not just because they viewed his name as too holy, because to swear by the name of God would utterly bind them to their vow or their oath. Utterly and absolutely bind them. So they swore by less holy things, apparently less holy things, so that they would not be utterly bound to their word. These vows became less binding until such time as those vows became dispensable, uh, breakable, They made themselves to be liars. They would not keep their word because they swore on something less holy than the name of God. 
somehow they had rationalized themselves, rationalizing their own thinking, whether they swore or not that their obligation to tell the absolute truth was circumstantial. And they did not have to do it in every circumstance and occasion. Or they swore by something lesser than God himself, thinking that that would bind them less in keeping that vow. They wanted to testify to the truth of what they were saying, but falsely and insincerely. That's what the law prohibited. Do not swear by my name falsely, Leviticus nineteen, twelve. That's what the Jews had done with the law of God. And we must acknowledge, friends, that we are surrounded by ever-decreasing standards of truth-telling. Ever-decreasing standards of truth-telling. There was a time, I think, in this country and in my own, for example, where public discourse, our political life, actually had honor in it. Maybe not honesty, but honor. If there was a scandal, that would lead to a resignation. But now a scandal is, is massaged away as if it never happened. And we have to say that one side of the aisle is really no better than the other side of the aisle. That's out there. What about in here? We are not immune from this reality, friends, of being less than truthful, less than sincere. Why would we be? We're sinners. We're guilty of every kind of sin under the law in some degree. But we ought to acknowledge, friends, we are under the grace of God. We are under the gaze of God. We have God's word written in our heart. And there is never an occasion for us to be insincere or false with the truth. There ought never be a time where we are found massaging or being economical with the truth. We ought to be people of our word, and lying ought to be anathema to the Christian. Because we know where lies come from, don't we? Listen to our Lord, John eight forty three. He says to the Jews, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's where lies and falsehoods come from. They don't come from God. They don't come from God. And so children here today, to the oldest amongst us, we're called to self-examination, a realistic, and listen to this, an honest assessment of ourselves. Do we struggle with this sin? Is lying an issue to us? Are we brazen in our lies, denying what everyone else can see and or are we those who slip into half-truths, so-called white lies, which are still lies? Is truth precious to us? Friends, would we rather face the consequences of telling the truth? 
Would we rather face the consequences of paying a costly vow or take a righteous oath than get away with those consequences and be found to be dishonest? Where do we stand on this, friends? Do we have a Christ-like attitude to the truth and truth-telling? And that's what our Lord is going to explain for us next in verses 34 and 36. What is a Christ-like attitude to truth-telling? The immediate context to which our Lord is speaking requires the correction of a sinful practice. He says, verse 34, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your head. We've already said that it appears he's outlawing taking oaths, but we know that can't be the case. The rest of Scripture is filled with godly oaths, godly vows. The Apostle Paul even says this in 2 Corinthians 1.18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Thinking back to this passage, no doubt. As God is faithful, he's invoking the name and character of God. Our word has not been yes or no. It's not been this and that. Remember, our Lord was before the high priest, and the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God to answer, and Jesus answered him. He was placed under an oath, and he answered it. Now here, friends, the way to think about oaths and vows is to think in a godly fashion about them. The prohibition here is on making false vows and oaths, insincere vows and oaths, vowing or taking an oath by something supposedly less holy than another, that gives us excuse and reason to break our word and break our vow. I knew a man in my previous church who, when he came into membership, said to us, well, my wedding vows are more serious than my membership vows. My wedding vows are more binding than my membership vows. And I was thankful for my ruling elder at the time who just plainly put him right. Who said, no, you take a vow before the Lord. You have vowed before the Lord. You are to pay your vow as Numbers 30 verse 2 says. We have here what Jesus says. Don't take an oath at all. Not by heaven. Why? Because it's holy. It's the throne of God. Verse 35, don't take an oath by earth. Why? Because it's holy. It's God's footstool. Don't take an oath by Jerusalem. Why? It's the city of the great king, not David, Jesus. Don't take an oath by your head. Why? Because your head is sacred and holy. And you are not the sovereign God. You cannot make one hair black or white. That is the work of and purview of God. Jesus is saying to them, you cannot swear insincerely by anything. Swearing an oath or taking a vow is inherently an activity of truth-telling. And to pollute it with insincerity or to break it later with lies is just wholly contradictory to the activity. Indeed, we cannot swear by anything good, can we, in this sense? Because anything good is of God and from God, and thus is in and of itself holy. 
to take a graded view of holiness is really to commit a twofold sin. Firstly, it leads us to a breach of the ninth commandment. It's to lie. To take a vow with a view to breaking it or an oath while you know you're not telling the truth is to be a determined liar. And we are in grave danger of hearing the same words our Lord said to the Jews in John 8. You are of your father the devil. If we have fallen into that kind of practice. It is a sin worthy of condemnation and in and of itself worthy of the pains of hell forever. But it's also a breach of the third commandment. It is to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. To invoke anything holy is to invoke God himself, who is holy. Nothing is holy without God making it so. To view a vow as breakable, friend, it makes you a liar. It makes you a liar. Jesus circles back to this teaching in Matthew 23. And he calls those people he is dealing with, he calls them blind fools. That's strong language from our Lord. They cannot see and they're lost and dead in sin. Subjects of destruction. That's what fool means. It's a terrible and damning indictment on the covenant people. The ones to whom the repository of truth had been committed. The Jews, the covenant people. Friends, to think in such a way is to deny the ultimate truths concerning God and the practical consequences of lying. Watering down the truth to suit oneself is as old as creation itself. And it has become the the norm in modern thinking Dear Christian, it must not be so with you. It must not be so with us. We must not let lies pollute this blessed fellowship. Remember the first lie came from Satan. He is the father of lies. He lied about the character of God. He lied about the provision of God to Adam and Eve, and the lie piqued the interest of Adam and Eve, who through that lie thought that God was holding out on them, who doubted his goodness and his character, and they took, according to the lie, what they should not have, and look what happened. Friends, ultimately, lying never prospers. It just doesn't. At one point in my life, I was given the same message by two pastors. I was about 19, 20, 21 years old. Two pastors just independently said the same thing to me in a different way. And it changed my life. And their basic message was, do what's right. In this case, tell the truth. Do what's right and leave the rest to God. That's good advice. Let God be God and do what's right. Tell the truth. Most of us here, friends, have taken vows of one sort or another. Marriages, husbands and wives, your vows were taken before God. Are you sincerely living those vows out? 
If you're a member of this church, you've taken vows to this church, vows to God actually, uh, before him in this church. Are you living according to the vows you took? Parents with our children, baptismal vows. Are we serious and conscientious in the way we're parenting our children? And the many other vows we may have taken throughout our lives, vows as officers, uh, vows in your professional employment, whatever it might be. Friends, are you keeping your word? Are you upright? Are you steadfast in this? Promises are not circumstantial. Vows and oaths do not vary with whim or will or circumstance. They bind us to something. And that's what really our Lord speaks of, the heart of truth in our last verse this morning. He gets right to the heart of the truth. This is how you are to behave, Christian, he says. He says this, let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The reality of Christian living is that on a daily basis, we don't usually need to enter into vows and oaths. Day-to-day living, you're not making oaths to your wife at home, are you, husband? I, 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 I promise I, I, I did the washing up when you were away. Well, that's, that's not how you live, at least I hope it's not. Wives and parents, the same with your children and, and, and all of us in our various callings. Ordinarily, we don't need to take vows and oaths because truth should be of such a high value to us that yes or no should be sufficient we acknowledge that vows and oaths are lawfully taken but they are extraordinary they are not usual or common our lord says it is simply enough or it should be enough for the christian to say yes or no Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Why should yes or no be sufficient for the Christian? Why should yes or no be sufficient for the Christian? Why don't we need to engage in this elaborate form of vow-taking by this, by that, or by the other, or even by the name of God? Why should yes or no be sufficient for our lives. I've already said it. It's this. We simply live before the Lord. Whether we swear an oath or not, take a vow or not, we live before the Lord. He knows all. He sees all. He hears all. And so yes or no is sufficient. We don't need to heap hot coals upon our head by adding to that. If there's insincerity in it, adding a vow to it is not going to change anything with God. He knows the content of our heart as we speak. We live before him. That's why yes or no ought to be sufficient. Because we live in that knowledge. We live in the knowledge that he sees our hearts. 
We might engage in the folly of trying to convince men by adding oaths and vows to our statements, but that doesn't change anything with God. We live before him. We are as an open book to him. He knows the beginning from the end. Christ's point, if we are going to make oaths and vows, is this. Invoking someone or something outside of ourself as a testimony to the truth of what we're saying ought to be done with sincere commitment. It ought to be done in all sincerity. There are no gradations of the truth and there are no gradations of commitment. As if a lesser commitment places upon us a lesser obligation to keep what we say. But rather our Lord just says this. Yes or no? Yes or no? We ought to have such a high regard for the truth. Such a high regard for the truth. That it's our first instinct. Our first instinct to speak the truth. Not to shift blame to others. Not to shift blame to others, but to take responsibility for ourselves or to take the consequences of telling the truth. Here our Lord prohibits the use of vows and oaths as a means of deception. Think on that. People taking vows and oaths as a means of deception. And when we think of this, two matters as we close come to mind. First of all, the truth that our Lord is teaching here, both in the yes and no, and in the vow-taking and oath-making, are testified to and manifest most clearly in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the truth-teller par excellence. There's never been anyone who walked this earth who spoke with perfect truth like our Lord. No deception found within him. No cunning of an evil kind. Why, he even swore to his own hurt. He held to the truth while he went through his temptations. He held to the truth while he stood before Pilate and the high priest. He swore an oath to who he was and who, what his mission was, even to the point of it sending him to the cross. Friends, that's how serious the Lord took truth-telling. It led him to the cross. And that death, dear friends, was sufficient to remove all the sins of all his people. Including the sin of lying. Including the sin of deception. Of falsehood. Of half-truths. His death is sufficient to remove those very sins. This is why he died. I want to say if there's any here today who do not know Christ, if you're an unbeliever, you are living in this world of, of deceit. You might consider yourself an honest person. You're not. You're just not. None of us are natively. And if you die in your state, you will face God on the account of your lies. 
and you will be condemned to hell unless you now repent and believe in Christ. And Christ's sin is Christ's righteousness, sorry, and your sin will be exchanged. Your sin will be removed from you, the debt against you removed, paid in full by the Lord, and you'll be granted a righteousness of perfect truth-telling. For the believer, if you're someone who struggles with, with this sin, as some of us no doubt do, if you struggle with truth-telling, the death of Christ provides you forgiveness. Daily forgiveness. As we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess the sin, we repent of it, we get on with life. And we endeavor after new obedience. Yes, the work of Christ doesn't just save us from sins. It propels us into a life of holiness and obedience. Christ having given us his spirit. That's good news for anyone struggling with sin here today. That's the first thing we think about in terms of truth-telling. But the second thing I've mentioned before is this. God himself swore an oath. He swore by himself, remember? The animal was cut in two. He passed between as a flaming torch. And he swore an oath by himself. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. To what did the Lord swear? He swore to salvation. Salvation in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God's covenant with Abraham summarized in the one person Christ and all his blessedness, God swore by himself an oath that he would bring this to pass. Listen to what the writer to the says in chapter 6 verse 13 for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is a is final for confirmation so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this. God's oath by himself. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. The Christian is not one who is blown around by every wind of doctrine, every lie or half-lie or falsehood. We need to be better than that because we have Christ. We have the oath 
of God. Friends, whether it be in our election, our effectual calling, our repentance and faith, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our perseverance and growth in grace, in the development of our own assurance of salvation, whether we go through times of doubt or we go through times of joy, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That he swore by himself, Christ and all his benefits will be yours when you embrace him by faith. There is no doubt in this matter. There is certainty in this matter of salvation. There can be no doubt. There is nothing greater to swear by. There is no one greater than the one swearing it. Our salvation is sure. Our salvation is strong. Our salvation is true. Never doubt it. Never doubt it. Because this is the author of your salvation. That's why, friends, truth matters. Because God tells us the truth there. He swore an oath by himself. God is a God of truth. His word is sure and true. And so ought the word of his children be sure and true. Let's pray. You, are triune God, are most blessed in that you've revealed unto us a most perfect way, a way filled with joy and with gladness, testified truly in your word. Oh, Lord, how we praise you that our salvation is absolute, with no weakness or failing or shadow of turning, or loss, or being tarnished. Give unto us each this day, Lord God, a true knowledge of your oath and truth-taking and keeping. That those of us, Lord, that doubt our assurance at times may not look unto ourselves, but look unto you. That all of us, Lord, might look unto you for refreshing grace to come from heaven, that the truth might become more and more precious to us, and we ought to live in it. And for those that do not know you, Lord God, do this day a great and mighty work in their hearts. Humble them, we pray, that the truth might be told and your name might be glorified. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.